Today, I am here with Nicholas Meyerson, a postdoctoral associate at the Biofrontiers Institute, CEO of Darwin Biosciences, and a scientist in the Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology Department of CU Boulder. Uh, Nicholas and his team at Darwin Biosciences recently created the SICK-SICK, a test which can tell if you are sick or not rather rapidly, and it won at the New Venture Challenge at CU Boulder. So, Nicholas, thank you for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. All right, so with the six stick, how does the device function? You can think of six stick as a molecular thermometer that reads saliva. And in your saliva are molecules, all sorts of molecules. But what we're most interested in are those that are deriving from your immune system. And whenever you're infected with a virus or a bacteria, really any pathogen, your body has these amazing ways of reacting to that. And really it comes down to your immune system sensing that something is going on that shouldn't be. And an immune activation occurs that releases molecules really all over your body. And some of those end up in your saliva. And those are the molecules that we're reading on six stick. And so it uses saliva as a biospecimen, which is great. It's not invasive like nasal swabs that you've been hearing about or blood draws. And that saliva undergoes a reaction that occurs to amplify the biomarkers that are in your saliva, the ones that are deriving from your immune response. And once that amplification occurs, you basically drop in a paper strip that's kind of like a pregnancy test, and the reaction will get resolved with one red stripe saying that you're healthy or two red stripes means you're sick. It's pretty much as simple as that. All right. Um, how can the results be verified? How accurate is the test? So right now, I should make it clear that we are in the development phases, and we have been working on the basic science of the technology for a couple years now. And the company was only founded on March 6th. So we've been rapidly transitioning from what's going on at the bench at, at CU Boulder to then forming a company that can actually move forward with things like clinical trials mm. and FDA clearance and the commercialization of the pro uh, product. And, you know, as a scientist, I've been involved mostly with the science. And then now as a founder, CEO of a company, learning how to take all that interesting technology and, and put it on the shelves of CVS. And so we're at a point with the technology that in the lab, everything works great. And we are now transitioning to conduct clinical trials to get exactly at the question that you're asking. Well, how good is it really? And that's what we want to know more than anything else. What's the sensitivity? What's the specificity? And what's the diagnostic window that this device is going to be most useful at? We think, based on data in the lab, that we're going to be able to diagnose infection in a pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic stage, which means before you even know that you're sick, which would be incredibly valuable, obviously, in today's world. And so when before the pandemic hit, we had actually four different trials that were either just starting or were going to start in the next few months. And it all kind of got put on hold because of the pandemic. And since then, we've pivoted to design our device such that it is more geared towards SARS-2 coronavirus detection. And also in line with that, we've been designing new trials 
that we hope to start as soon as this week or even next week to collect samples from first responders and healthcare workers in the Denver area that will allow us to get at exactly what you're asking. How good is this thing? And those samples will be so critical. And so we're really hoping that the, the trials that we have set up will be able to address that. With these trials, uh, why did you choose first responders to get samples from? So with any diagnostic device, there is a term called prevalence, which is basically saying, what's the probability that a random person will have the disease that you're looking at? And if that number is really low, let's say 0.1% of the population, you have to enroll a lot of people to get the positive samples that you need. And so the lower the prevalence, the more people you have to uh, analyze in your study and therefore, the more expensive it is, the longer it'll take, et cetera. And so we are targeting first responders and healthcare workers because these people, unfortunately, are most likely to be exposed to the virus and become sick. And so we can effectively increase the prevalence that we're observing, in which case we need to collect a much smaller number of samples to observe the events that we're interested in, meaning people getting sick or people that are already sick. So with that, with trying to find samples to use for the device, um, what was the idea behind the device? Where did you get the idea to create this device? Um, how did you get the idea for how it would work? It's some research that we have been conducting for quite a long time. I. Uh, we'll say now I've, I've worked in the lab of Dr. Sarah Sawyer at CU Boulder for, for many years. I got my graduate degree with her back in Texas when she was at University of Texas and then moved with her to University of Colorado when she moved the lab where I became a postdoc and, and a sort of project manager overseeing all sorts of projects. And our expertise is in immunology. We've studied this very early response to pathogens for over a decade. And so our, our background kind of fits the mold of the technology that, that is important for SickStick. And about two years ago, we, she received a grant from the Department of Defense that was mostly geared around basic science, understanding the response to infection, early biomarkers that might arise in different bodily fluids. And our program officer that worked at the Department of Defense challenged us to think how the research we were doing could be used to create a diagnostic device. And the military is very interested in a device that can do two things. One, they want it to act early. And the uh, goal for that is that it can beat the thermometer, the mercury thermometer that everybody uses to measure temperature. That's actually our competition because that's an easy-to-use device. It gives you results, obviously, very quick. And it's really the only thing that we have that comes close to measuring if somebody is getting sick, even though it does require that you have a fever. But usually that's one of the first things that happens during the symptomatic course of infection. And so, number one, they needed it to beat the thermometer. And number two, which is the more interesting challenge, is they wanted it to act generally to detect infections. They didn't want it specifically tuned to a particular pathogen. And the, the reason is because 
at military bases, like recruitment bases, they're dealing with epidemics almost all the time because they get young people coming from all over the country that show up in one place and they put them in close quarters. Infectious disease, it spreads like wildfire through these places. And so they really need a device that can act before symptoms occur and that broadly detects infections like respiratory and GI tract, stomach bugs, basically, so that they can figure out who's getting sick before they're contagious and take that person and quarantine them. That way, all the soldiers don't go down at once. And so that idea got put into our minds uh, a couple of years ago, really. And Sarah and I started thinking more deeply about applying our technologies to a there, uh, to a diagnostic device. And so <clears throat> we started doing that. And the more we thought about it, the more it seemed like it could really be a reality. And, you know, as academics, we started thinking about starting a business and what would that take? Can we really do this? Do we have the resources? And we collaborated and, and talked a lot with the venture partners department at CU Boulder, which is been an incredible resource for us, but essentially they exist to identify interesting technologies happening at the university and help them um, cross that gap between academic research and commercialization. So they helped us look at the idea and realize, yeah, we can patent some of this stuff. Let's get some patents in. And they started putting us in touch with entrepreneurs in the area to better understand how to start a business, how to develop a business. And that's kind of how it all started. And, and really over the course of the past year, I've been working incredibly hard to get the business going and, and recruit people that can help me and, and keep mentors close to make sure I'm not misstepping too much. And so that's ultimately how Darwin Biosciences was born and I'll say, aside from me and Dr. Sarah Sawyer, there's two other co-founders, Camille Page and Ching Yang, both also scientists in Sarah lab, Sarah's lab that have been integral to the development of the device and, and associated technologies. So with this startup, um, it, your creation won the New Venture Challenge at CU, correct? That's right, yeah. What was it like being a part of the New Venture Challenge? What was it like winning that challenge? So being a part of it was really cool. Um, it was the first competition that I was in where I felt like I was really pitching something out of the box. We, we had participated in the Lab Venture Challenge back in the fall, and that was, that was all technology-based, and it was mostly scientists. So the level of pitching was kind of at a similar level, you know, a scientist trying to act like they know how to do business. So it, totally different than the new venture challenge where I was pitted against close to 150 teams, most of which came from business backgrounds. So the pitches were really sharp. I remember sitting in some of the early practices thinking, oh man, I got to I gotta up my game and get some some prettier images on the screen here. This is going to be tough. So it was very different in that respect, and the pitch was only five minutes. I was used to giving 10 to 15-minute pitches, so I had to be very concise. And progressing through the rounds was 
pretty nerve wracking, I would say. Um, you know, you, you show up like for the first round and you see all the other teams, you're kind of hanging out in the waiting room, looking, sizing up your competition and you just go into a room for five minutes and then you're out five minutes after that. So it's very quick. Um, the organization was incredible. All the, all the people involved in making NVC happen communicated very well with us and updated us frequently, especially when the pandemic started affecting the situation, which happened after the first round. And so rounds two and the final round were all remote. So moving remotely was very interesting. You go from being in front of people and being able to read the judge's responses to kind of just giving your presentation in a black box, which for people like me and I, I would guess other entrepreneurs is that's tough because there's nothing that excites you more than talking about your product and seeing people react to it. So that was kind of gone. And then in the final round, we had to submit pre-recorded videos. And so it was really a black box at that point because we were just doing it blindly, essentially hoping whatever we recorded and submitted would, would get the job done. So, and the night of the competition was, it was great. I mean, we had, phenomenal judges uh we did a couple practice rounds just to make sure technically everything was going to work out and ultimately it did and uh winning was i mean it's it's unbelievable just because of the amount of competition that was involved uh i knew i had something special because of what we were developing and of what was going on in the world so it was just very satisfying to know that what we're doing is something people can get behind and having won and the prize money is, is going to support that goal. So we're doing everything we can to, to follow through and, and make sure that we, we do something people can one day use. So you mentioned that the pandemic started after the first round of the, the challenge. So how did that affect your workflow? Um, did that kind of change how you were working? Did that change what you were working towards? Um, did it kind of shift your or rearrange priorities? It, it did in a lot of ways. Um, aside from how it affected the competition, running a business, I think, has been it, – it's changed for everybody. For us, we've been far more busy because of what we're working on, so I, I'm thankful for that. But things are moving so fast. I mean, every day – is something new and, and a, an opportunity to shift goals or change the technology or try to adapt to what the, the current political situation is. And so there's a lot of shiny objects out there right now for us, given what we're working on. And, and so our, our workflow changed drastically. We were at the university. That's where our lab is. And the labs closed. So we didn't know what was going to happen at that point. Luckily, because of what we're working on, we got emergency access for all the team members. And we aren't on a very fixed schedule anymore. You know, everybody has their own ways of thinking about how they might be affected by this pandemic. And so I've essentially told my team, look, we've got an opportunity to do something really special here. And I want everybody's help. But there's nothing I want more than, the, than for people to feel safe. And so luckily my, 
my team is highly motivated and ambitious. And so we've been able to, to conduct quite a lot of work still since we have emergency access, but um, there's still a lot of remote discussions that are happening and, and we try not to fill up the lab all at once. And so it, it has changed quite a bit, but again, we're lucky that we still have access to the lab and we're working on something that's incredibly relevant to resolve the situation. So with this device in general and with, in light of the pandemic, um, you mentioned that this device was based on some prior research, correct? That's right. So what kind of problems did you have to solve as a team? What kind of uh, research did you have to do on your own or what kind of problems did you have to solve? So we have had to better understand the exact way to take advantage of the immune response. And what I mean by that is, is really it's been a, an exercise in what we're called down-selecting. And what we're down-selecting or trying to figure out what the best biomarkers are is because there's so many of them. We actually, the patent that we have for these biomarkers includes over 400 of them. And that's because when a virus or pathogen invades your cells, this initial immune response results in massive changes in how your cell starts behaving. It, it basically goes from kind of a senescent state, meaning not very active, to all of a sudden having to do a lot of things. So there's a lot of changes that occur. And because of that, there's a lot of candidates that we have that could be included in our product. We can't take 400 biomarkers and integrate them onto a paper strip. And so one of the most important things that we're dealing with right now, and, and we have been for years, is understanding what are the best like four or five biomarkers that are the most predictive of the infected state of an individual. Because four or five, we can engineer and design onto a paper strip that can be utilized in our product. And so that's, that's one, I'd say, major area of research that we've been dealing with. The other one that's a little bit more fluid and happening in real time is asking that same question, except specifically for coronavirus. So saying... Forget about trying to detect every infection at once or any infection, which is the six-stick device that the military wants, to asking a far more specific question. Which of these hundreds of biomarkers that we're studying are more specifically upregulated when somebody's infected with SARS-2 coronavirus? And so those are two similar goals, but for very different reasons. So Research-wise, that's some of the most active areas that we're dealing with currently. What is the search for these biomarkers like? How do you investigate this? There's a, a few levels that I would describe. So Ching Yang, one of the co-founders, deals with the most upstream portion, which is the prediction of these biomarkers. And he's developed a, what's called a bioinformatic pipeline, basically, doing biology on a computer is what that means, <laughs> that allows him to analyze all sorts of different data sets at once. It's, kind of, it's called a meta-analysis. So taking into account not just data that we've gathered, 
but data that any lab in the world has gathered on infection, getting it all into one place, running this bioinformatic pipeline that he's developed that's resulted in one of our patents, by the way, and seeing what are good biomarkers based on all the different credentials that we have. We want it to be broad or we want it to be specific to SARS-2. We need it to be in saliva, you know, those kinds of things. And from there, we have our list. And then based on top hits, there's ways of ranking them that Ching, again, has come up with. We can say, okay, going from this list of 400, here's the top, let's say, 50, which we can actually start designing experiments to specifically test in our hands, in our lab. And that's kind of where things are at the moment as far as the SARS-2 device is concerned. And that's exactly now why we need to start this clinical trial to, the, to collect samples from healthcare workers or emergency responders so that we can take those top candidates and see what the best ones are. And that involves a lot of different experiments in the lab, but ultimately we transition from predictions in a computer model to verification using lab-based material like tissues grown in uh, dishes, for example, to now saying, okay, now what we need is samples from actual infected patients to test these biomarkers on, which we hope to do in the next few months. And then we can move forward with finalizing the design of the actual six-stick device. So you mentioned a little while ago that there was a lot of work being done um, with samples on the computer and with kind of like digital um, data. Do you feel like there's been a lot of scientific collaboration in light of the coronavirus? It's been unprecedented, to be totally honest. Um, Every day you can wake up and see new papers being put online about coronavirus. Scientists have been incredibly transparent and open to sharing data. We had, and and oftentimes I'm talking to people on Twitter and uh, different online outlets and seeing them post data in real time. They'll basically say, look at this experiment I did today. I'm going to post the results, you know, on this public depository so it can be uh, available to the public tomorrow kind of thing. And so it's, it's really been incredible, and it, it's so much information that it's overwhelming. And so we are taking into account all this stuff in real time, too, uh, and because everybody wants to fix the problem. And scientists in particular are really wanting to contribute in any way that they can. I think probably that's true for most people. And the best way we can do that as scientists is to get data and make it available. And I, I would say generally that's been what's happening. So it's, it's, it's moving incredibly fast. And like I said, it's, it's been pretty transparent for the most part. So with this device, what kind of a change do you hope it will be able to make in both just the world and in the fight against COVID-19? What is the change that you hope to see? Ultimately, I think this device will allow us to peer into a point in time that we couldn't see before. 
and specifically that's the presymptomatic and asymptomatic phases of infection. Especially during this pandemic, it's become so relevant to know not just who's sick and has symptoms, but who could be a carrier. These asymptomatic individuals are accounting for a significant amount of transmission such that we've got to know who they are. So we hope that our device will address that. It will provide a test that can detect these asymptomatic individuals. And in a broader sense, we hope that that kind of technology will aid our ability to get back to work, which is, I think, the number one goal of everybody right now. We're all getting antsy. We've got cabin fever. We want to go back to work. But it's generally agreed upon by experts and that we can't do that unless we have some kind of screening tool that can be distributed broadly and that can detect infection before symptoms occur. So for the pandemic, I think it will be incredibly useful to get our technology out as soon as possible. We do envision that it will be portable and affordable but beyond the pandemic, we think that given the situation that's occurred now, it's in people's minds to want to know if they're sick before they have symptoms. They want to, I think we will do a better job at, say, not going to work if I'm coughing and sneezing all over the place, which if your workplace is every, anything like mine and people are super ambitious, we come kind of come to work no matter what because we want to be there. So I hope that'll change, and I hope this device will provide a means to measure the activity of your immune system and, and tell you a little bit more about should I be going to work today or not. So with that, um, while you are still in the developmental phases, what do you hope the availability of the product will be? Do you hope that it will be available to the public, or will it be reserved for, say, um, medical practices or other organizations? Well, we actually have two forms of the device. One that we've been discussing a lot is, you know, the portable, the portable one that can be used at home. And we hope that that's where it ends up in the, in the hands of the consumer, whether it would be distributed by the state as part of a pandemic response or on the shelves of CVS is, is yet to be determined. Those distribution channels are, are complicated and we're, we're trying to work out where, where it's going to go and how it's going to get there in that sense. But we also have a more high-resolution version of the device that can be used in clinics. So it's not a portable paper test, but it's more similar to the tests that are being done right now in clinics to detect coronavirus infection or not. We've just adapted our biomarkers to that. And so that test for, the, for clinic use, just because the regulatory barriers are a little different when you're talking about using a device in the clinic versus somebody sitting at home administering a test to themselves. We have a, a faster path to get our clinical-based tests out there to be used by hospitals and clinics. And that technology will be – is a necessary means to the portable device anyways, which would come a bit later just because of the regulatory landscape and manufacturing, engineering barriers, things like that. So what we're actually hoping to do with this trial that we're starting is use it as a means to get our laboratory-based test of SIGSTIC through what's called emergency use authorization through the FDA, which 
they enacted specifically for the coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, it all depends on, on how the trial goes. When, when we get the sample we need, how long that takes, the emergency use authorization can be done relatively quick. Um, really big established companies have gone through it in two weeks. I, I don't think we can do it that fast. But we do think ultimately the lab-based diagnostic <clears throat> could be submitted for EUA approval within the next few months, maybe a couple months. And once that happens, that will greatly accelerate the, the development of the portable six-stick device that we hope people will use at home. Well, I believe that is all the questions I have for you. Um, is there anything you would like to tell our listeners now, or is there anything you'd like to leave as kind of a final note? Is there anything you'd like listeners to think about or to know? Yeah, just that, you know, again, we're a brand new company, so I want to just highlight our co-founders again, uh, Sarah Sawyer, Camille Page, Ching Yang, and we've also hired a COO, Rick Whitcomb, who came on board with us about a month ago, and, and he has a lot of experience in building companies and working in startups, and he's really here to, to fight for us, and he's been a great mentor to me as I learn how to become a CEO and, and run a company. And we did just launch a website, darwinbiosciences.com, so um, my PR consultant would be upset if I didn't say that. So <laughs> we do, we are online now. We do have a presence, so we're, we are excited about that. And uh, otherwise, we, we're just looking forward to getting some trials in place and, and moving this forward as fast as possible. We, we really believe in our technology, and, and just like everybody else, we want to do whatever we can to, to fix this situation and, and let people go back to work and their normal lives. Mr. Matheson, thank you for talking to us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you.